I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Dustin Kosky. And I'm Am Kosky. And we love to watch. We love to watch a guy enjoy a Pepsi and a sandwich. Try to get away, but I couldn't get far because a man with the touch of repossessed my car. Don't push me because I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Standing on the front stoop, hanging out the window, watching all the hey, 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 Adam. Hey, Dustin. Hey, Hi, Aaron. Hey, hey, Koski boys, back so soon. Look, I, I have a question, Dustin. Did you almost say I'm Adam at the beginning? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're not gonna edit that out, are you? <laughs> no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna double it. I'm gonna triple it. I'm gonna make it the new slogan. Uh, I'm Ad Dustin. Yeah. Well, I was so jealous of how Adam is a scientist, which is the title of a Guided by Voices song, that I just <laughs> wanted to be him for a moment. You guys did some research since your last episode. <laughs> did you know that through science you can become Adam? No, not anymore. So thank you guys for coming back. Thank you oh. for having us. Um, you guys might it- not be aware of this yet, but this is the best movie you're ever going to do on this show. I'm excited to find one that Dustin likes this much. Dustin, you called this, like, back in May when I mentioned it. You're like, Tar- we're doing Targets. Definitely Targets. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, this this is, no uh, questions asked, my favorite movie of all time. I did not know oh, that. That is know exciting. That Adam, is it your favorite movie of all time? Or uh, is it, like, two, three? Where are you at with it? <laughs> it might be, you know, in the the top thousands, but... I enjoyed it. <laughs> Had you ever seen it before? Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. We both saw it uh, like 2005 or so. Is that the yes. scientific way to say? In the year of our Lord, 2005. <laughs> Adam, was imita- Adam was imitating that really groovy DJ when he, <laughs> he said it that way. I, I, liked the, I, I was kind of hoping Adam had said no because I like the idea that Dustin has spent decades trying to get adam to watch his favorite movie and he refused <laughs> up until appearing on this podcast i'm well, sorry to disappoint you well you've been on our show a few times Dustin. i'm used to being very disappointed um, <laughs> so before we get going why don't you tell uh our audience if they haven't heard your last uh seven to ten appearances we're not sure we don't want to do the research why don't you t- why don't you introduce yourself to our audience I'm a guy who writes for Top Tens and moves furniture for Second Chances, which is a thrift store that uh, supports Turning Point Shelter for Victims of Domestic Abuse. And now I plug Democratic candidates everywhere all the time in hopes of creating a blue midterm 2018. And I'm Am Kosky. I work at Eurofins Biodynastics as a plant scientist, and I'm also a writer from Cracked and some other online magazines. And Adam's trying to engineer a blue uh, wave by by uh, building the perfect voter out of one cell at a time. <laughs> Using seeds is kind of the hard way, but... This person can't vote, he's a plant! <laughs> it's my 1950s horror movie. Yeah. Well, anyway, so thank you for coming on to talk about what I didn't know was, was Dustin's favorite movie. That's great. We've done Dustin's favorite movie on the show. We've done Pete's favorite movie on the show. Aaron, alone, the corner. Uh, yeah, someday we'll do Powder. 
<laughs> sorry, sorry. Uh, you got that wrong. Here's my second favorite. My favorite is uh, th- all three Jeepers Creepers movies. <laughs> oh. uh, Adam, so, Adam, what's your favorite uh, uh, movie? Have we I, done I'm, it? I'm, I don't think so. I, I'm a probably like basic bitch type Godfather <laughs> Part Two or something like that. <laughs> I heard of that it's one. Still a- I mean, or Schindler's List. It's still Maybe. a reputable option. You don't have to be ashamed of liking yeah, one of the best movies of all time. Yeah, I've never heard someone say, you know, I like that dumb movie, Godfather Part 2. <laughs> <laughs> Generally considered one of the best movies of all time. <laughs> um, but yeah, pretty basic of you. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but anyways, where we love to watch for movie podcasts, we pick a theme uh, and we cover four movies on that theme and if we remember we can pair and contrast them this is our last week of the most dangerous game month and we're doing a movie that doesn't quite fit in the theme but is a movie i love and peter hadn't seen uh and i and something i really wanted to talk about in the show and that movie is a 1968 peter bogdanovich movie targets um it's his first movie he did it with roger corman we're gonna be talking a little bit more about that, but we're Peter. Now that you've seen the movie, because you hadn't seen it, uh, you've been calling this as a comparison to our to last week's movie, Hard Target. You've been calling this movie Soft Targets. Uh, how how do you feel about yourself now? That you <laughs> oh, the targets are incredibly soft. I mean, it's insensitive, uh, though accurate. Yeah. So we have a quick game, uh, and I don't know how it's going to work at all because I didn't write anything down for it. But this, you know, it occurred to me. That this is the last week of the most dangerous game month. We have a rare opportunity to kind of discuss from the perspective of two people who have known each other uh, their entire lives. How they think they would do together if they were pitted against each other in some sort of battle royale, most dangerous game type situation. Now, you may say as the listener or as one of the Koskis, Aaron, love your show. You and Peter... Spent a lot of time together, too. You guys didn't pit each other pit, pit each other against each other in a most dangerous game scenario on any of these episodes. And I would say, you're right. We didn't. That's what our podcast is. We are trying to see who talks themselves to death first. Uh, so it doesn't count. Uh, but Adam, Dustin, just let us know which if you guys were in a battle royale, most dangerous game, you had to hunt the other one, brother against brother. Like this, our most famous war, the Spanish-American Civil War. Who would win? We would try to battle royale it by hacking the system that put collars around our necks that explode. No, no collars. It's just you two. You're on an island. Justin, well, since well, you clearly want to go first. <laughs> well, there you go. That goes to show that I would have the initiative. <laughs> to make the first move and take Adam down. You're gonna what you're gonna so you're gonna take off his collar and take off your collar and like fling it at him? <laughs> sure. Okay. Great. Adam, from your uh, perspective. Okay, let's see. I need a tropical island, I assume, or semi tropical? Ooh, let's say half tropical, half uh Antarctic. Yeah, what's the average, <laughs> okay. what's the average rainfall? Is it oh, which side? The tropical side or the uh, Arctic side? Average the two and give me the medium amount, median amount in the past hundred years. Uh, it's it's ten inches on average, twenty on the tropical side, zero on the snowy. Side. <laughs> Got it. So it's 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 a, it's a true desert island on one side. It's a, it's and, a uh, desert uh, desert. You know how they say that the Arctic is the desert of the cold. <laughs> mm-hmm. They do say that. It's in all the textbooks. Sorry, Adam, continue. Let's see. I'm thinking attrition, like. 
just let Dustin chase me, maybe, or something. I'm currently in bear shape. That kind of changes year to year between us because we kind of like alternate gym membership in a way. But at the moment, anyway, I have the strength, but I also have the speed. <laughs> so is so is, is so, the, you're saying the flesh is willing, but is the spirit weak? Uh, it would be hard for me to commit fratricide. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, but you're kind of you're kind of creating a scenario where you won't actually. I mean, it's going to be a passive kill because, from what I understand, you're just going to run around the island until Dustin <laughs> dies of exhaustion chasing you, and then you That's can just true. bury him in sand or snow, <laughs> presuming on which side of the island he falls over. I think he prefers sand. He's not a fan of the cold. No, Adam. Sand is coarse and it gets everything. <laughs> then again, I don't want him to die of dehydration or something if he can't find water. So maybe, yeah. Well, it's an island. Do... It's a, we'll say freshwater island. <laughs> well, oh, freshwater. That changes everything. There's three dinosaurs. <laughs> Hold okay, on. I, Actually, I make... I'm writing notes. Just be quiet for a second. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is good stuff. The, the one, the pterodactyl. So I had the flight advantage. <laughs> And I mean, I didn't from- name the dinosaurs, so thank you for taking the initiative. <laughs> Adam has the initiative now, so... <laughs> yeah, now it's Dustin's turn to react. I, yeah. I spent my turn okay, so yeah. running around and yeah. on a pterodactyl. <laughs> Adam picked the first dinosaur. That means the next one's yours, and then Peter, the other judge, gets to name the third dinosaur. Adam, your dinosaur. Oh, my my name for it? No, sorry, Dustin, your dinosaur. Oh, okay, <laughs> yeah. That's the confused you at the start. Well, okay, I was just saying I, Adam because that's what he's been responding to tonight. <laughs> I, th- I think I think I find a brontosaurus and I'm intimidated by its tallness, so Ooh. it kills me in a. <laughs> Fun fact: brontosauruses <laughs> don't exist, so you have zero dinosaurs. <laughs> um, Peter, right, I move. Oh, dang it! I wanted to steal a dinosaur. Oh yeah, you mm. can have a dinosaur. You got an extra one. I'm going to take a little one, like just a little ding. guy. Like yeah. a like a ducky or <laughs> you know, d- duckies get pretty big, like more like an actual. I, I feel like you guys need to learn more about dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, you guys gotta. You guys gotta one that didn't exist f- and one that is a nickname for a t- cartoon character from Land Before Time. <laughs> um. So you want to bring uh, John Cryer from Pretty in Pink to the island? Got it. <laughs> um. You want to bring a dinosaur? How about the fax machine? <laughs> It's a, it's a dinosaur <laughs> yeah, in our modern technological Aaron, landscape. Aaron, that's that's pretty good stuff. You could you could send a fax says help. Uh, Aaron, uh, I, I've, I've seen the car you drive. That's a dinosaur. <laughs> I, if I could contribute a dinosaur, what about the friendly uh, woolly mammoth? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely a dinosaur. Let's talk about the categories of uh, of dinosaur right now. Um, Furry ones. Do- Definitely number one. <laughs> you know, like that that movie, Ice Age: Dawn of the Dinosaur. <laughs> the squirrel one, voiced by John Leguizamo. <laughs> John Leguizamo also a dinosaur. Few people know that. Uh, Dennis Hopper from <laughs> Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> uh, the concept of slime, also a dinosaur. Almost everyone in that that Koopa dimension was a dinosaur, based on my understanding of the evolutionary tract that that particular species of the parallel dimension followed. As a scientist, you are correct. Oh. <laughs> As a scientist who's been exposed to Super Mario Brothers, the movie. <laughs> uh, As a scientist, Adam can confirm... This ain't no game. 
<laughs> um so i have to say uh this is why if human hunting for sp- uh, if hunting humans for sport was on tv i would probably watch something else <laughs> uh there appear to be uh two brothers chasing each other around the island and then one falls over and the other one refuses to commit fratricide already off the bat the season is not going well and then someone drops a fax machine on the other one's head (laughs) several of them are offered dinosaurs as weapons and opt to pick uh non-options Yeah, I'm not going to lie. About halfway through that, I forgot what we were doing. Um, I would just like to say, um, Aaron, could you maybe like um, tweak the climate controls and make the entire island uh, frozen so that they can never, ever escape this island? Here's what happened. I shifted it, but it just kind of did like a 180 flip. So the side that was frozen is now tropical, and the side that was tropical is now frozen. So I just... Oh, man. I was on the tropical side. Oh, Ooh, frozen. Yay. I love that movie. <laughs> Uh, do you guys want to talk about targets? <laughs> sure. Let's talk about targets. A typical American family at dinner. Mom and dad, their beautiful daughter-in-law, and their only son, Joe. A homicidal maniac. Harry! What are you doing? How's your dad? It's okay. There you go. Thanks a lot. What you hung this time? I'm gonna shoot some pigs. Targets, a movie about a war inside a man's head. Uh, oh, that's you. <laughs> oh, great. I was just curious. I was just, uh, you know, I figured I'd give you a lot of stuff to edit out right off the bat. Really? No, it's nice because then when this thing is two hours and 40 minutes long, I'll be like, well, at least that first 20 minutes is basically going away. <laughs> oh, that was all trash. I just needed to warm up. No, to, thank you. To give you slightly less stinky trash. So the alternate tagline for this is just when you thought it was safe. To not get punched by Boris Karloff. (laughs) (laughs) Because he's old and dead, is what I'm saying. But So this guy thought it was safe, and nope. His last cinematic outing, right in the kisser. I think this is going to be a pretty easy movie to recap. Boris Karloff is a aging, sort of bitter version of himself as... Byron Orlock, a classic horror movie actor, sort of making movies in the Corman Corman mold where as soon as he's done screening- literally making Corman movies. We see clips of his movies. Uh, He's making uh, specifically uh, The Terror is the one that we're seeing screened. He says he's going to retire. He's not doing any more movies. He's not doing any more, uh, you know, public uh, events, anything like that. Uh, goes back to his hotel room to drink. His uh, his secretary and the young director that he sort of uh, buddied up with try and convince him to do that. To to do and, uh, and that, one last and that movie. director is played by Peter Bogdanovich, um, named uh, Sammy movie. Michaels. Um, uh, at the same time, we see a clean cut, uh, you know, white kind of preppy American boy, apparently back from Vietnam, but gathering up weapons he's acting a little weird towards his family very protective and we sort of see him um pretend to be normal maybe drop hints to his family that he's sort of losing it um and you know there's a weird weird incident where uh he's 
shooting at cans with his dad and he's considering killing his dad and his dad just chalks it up to like careless sort of uh, trigger discipline, careless hunting discipline. And he lives with his uh, wife and he lives with both of his parents. And uh, one day he snaps, kills his wife, kills his mother and kills the delivery boy. His dad is at work, so he doesn't kill him. And uh, then he just starts his rampage. He goes to the highway um, and starts picking off people from the top of this big, uh, you know, gas tank thing, this big industrial machinery. Um, and then he barely escapes. He drops a bunch of guns as he leaves, whatever. He's, uh, you know, getting away from the cops. He ends up pulling up to a movie theater promising the uh, a public appearance by the famous actor Byron Orlock. So Byron Arlock has been drinking in his hotel room, talking to his secretary, this young director. They're trying to convince him. They're trying to convince him to come back, do a little bit of, at least do this public appearance, and at least do this one last movie. Blah blah blah. Byron Arlock has this long night, and he sort of comes to the realization: okay, I'll do this one last public appearance. So he uh, goes to the theater with his secretary. And, uh, you know, his other his other uh, uh, colleagues are kind of in tow as well. Um, the same theater that Bobby, our shooter, is posting up behind the screen with a small hole drilled behind it to snipe at targets. Then we're in the last half hour of the movie. Bobby is just murdering people in their cars and sort of causing general chaos because people can't hear over the sound or... He's just sniping and killing people in certain cars, certain people are escaping, and eventually the cops show up, people are trying to hunt him down as a as a mob. Byron Orlock, who this whole movie has been sort of thinking that his career, you know, it should end. He's People aren't scared of the sort of old-style monsters anymore. He starts to approach Bobby to try and stop him, because Bobby's on the run. Uh, Byron comes up and just slaps the shit out of him, hits him with his cane, and then the cops and the, the mob catch up and arrest Bobby for the crimes, and uh, Byron says, I think Byron says, that's who I was afraid of? Is that ends. what I was afraid of? Is that of? what I was afraid of? And then the movie ends. Yeah. Yeah, you, 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 see, his, you see Bobby's car uh, abandoned in the drive-in. That, that's the final shot of the movie. Um, yeah, it's it's a very creepy shot that kind of summarizes the cold sort of clinical approach a lot of the movie takes to this killer and the horrors of the modern world. Um, and it is it it is a Roger Corman movie. Um, it's you know it was uh, Peter Bogdanovich. He he. Uh, I, well, I guess actually, um, Boris Karloff owed. Roger Corman, two days of work. If you ever like, if you get a chance to watch that Roger Corman documentary that came out a couple years ago, I would highly recommend it because it is just so insane how they're like, oh, we got eight days. Let's let these people like shoot these movies. And some of them are crap. And some of them turn into these kind of like iconic movies that started these amazing director uh, or directorial careers. And this is kind of one of those. They had Boris Karloff for two days. I guess uh, Peter convinced him to stay a little bit longer to get a few more things done. Um, which is kind of a lot of the meta aspects of uh, one of the halves of this movie that we'll talk about. And oh, Karloff refused, uh, refused payment for those extra days because he was yeah. so impressed by Bogdanovich and his script. Yep. Uh, so this really was like, I don't know yet, yeah, try this. And um, now I'm forgetting who gave Peter the advice to um, 
save all of your money for the final confrontation. That was Sam Fuller. That was Sam Fuller. I think. Okay. Yeah. And he said, hey, w- the thing with these movies is just, you know, save all your budget for one or two big set pieces. And so as a result, it's a short movie. The two big set pieces, the highway shooting and the drive-in shooting – are amazing. It really is an example of a tiny budget movie not feeling like a Roger Corman movie. Like this, this does not feel like a typical Roger Corman movie. This really does feel like one of those, like an early, um, an early effort from a kind of master director from the sixties. I saw it for the first time uh, when it was a dissolved movie in the week, I think back in about five years ago now. And I was blown away. It was one of those immediate five star movies. I just absolutely loved it. I will turn it over to, to to Peter and then to Dustin and Adam to kind of talk about their experience with this movie. But I am I am excited because it's a short movie and it's basically two halves of a whole. It's like almost two mini movies that run into each other at the end. But there's so much to talk about in both aspects and the way they converge that I'm very excited for for this episode. So, Peter, it was your first time. Yeah, uh, it was my first time watching Targets. Uh, I... It's a movie that's out of print on DVD. For no apparent reason, it hasn't been snatched up by Criterion or any of those guys to do a a really solid uh, re-release of it. Because this movie, I'm sure, would look great on Blu-ray or whatever. But it is a movie I was incredibly impressed with. This is the sort of movie that I'm really glad that Aaron pushed for and uh, Dustin and Adam were excited to cover as well because... Uh, otherwise, I might have just, you know, let it slip by for a couple more years. And it, it feels like such a unique film. It's a, a movie that talks about Hollywood, but it doesn't have its head up its own ass. It's an incredibly taut thriller that has aged like wine. It's so – it's still so taut and modern. It still has to say so much about like um, – American gun psychosis where these shooters will just uh, start stockpiling weapons and people will ignore the signs or the signs are so subtle. How would you even know? It it just has so much to say. It has incredible performances. It doesn't feel like a Corman movie because a lot of Corman movies were either these sort of more antiquated period pieces. And if they were modern, they didn't have the sort of uh, grounded reality to this. Uh, they could have been hippie freakout movies or, you know, motorcycle freakout movies. It didn't have – none of them that I've seen had this sort of uh, taut modernity to it. And I love both halves in the movie because Boris Karlov, apparently to his dying day – I mean, he made a bunch of movies after this. Some of them were stockpiled before. Some he performed in after. Um, yeah, and he claimed that this was uh, maybe his favorite movie ever made. Yes, both halves of the movie are amazing because it has Boris Karlov being this just charming man. Like, it's it's so fun to watch him sort of riff on a version of himself. In real life, he was actually incredibly sweet and happy about his life in Hollywood. He was definitely, to quote Bella Lugosi and Ed Wood, uh, definitely not a cocksucker. <laughs> um, he, uh, he, he, well, he, he got a lot of paraphrase. He, he got a... Uh, he got along with Bela Lugosi a lot. Edward Ed is an amazing movie that actually kind of uh, misrepresented um, Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff's relationship. Well, but I still think that this movie, I, I think he's very sweet about quitting Hollywood. He just seems like, you know what? I'm done. Like, I've done enough movies. I think I'm done. 
Like, yeah. that's enough. This... And he's very, he seems very peaceful with that decision. He doesn't seem like it's resentful. Like, even this movie, I don't even know why they bothered to call him not Boris Karloff because this is like, it, it, it is him in all but name. Yes. It's, uh, it, it, Again, even the clips they're showing are Boris Karloff movies. And, like, <laughs> throughout the course of it, he's like, I remember acting in this movie, and there's Boris Karloff. Like, it, it maybe it was just a weird choice because at the time, audiences would be like, what what the fuck you mean? This did this happen to Boris Karloff? Like I don't know if the if like the meta aspects. Like I don't think maybe nineteen the audiences of nineteen sixty eight weren't ready for like a being John Malkovich. Maybe they saw everyone walk out going, "Are people walking into John Malkovich's head?" Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's I, I I love the meta textual aspects of that and like just sort of sussing out like is this Boris Karloff. Uh, reflecting on his own existence, despite the fact that Boris Karloff had apparently almost no impact on the, or, you know, input in the script. Oh, he did. And (laughs) he, and then um, Bogdanovich just so wonderfully directs the thriller half of this movie. And yeah, so Dustin and and Adam, what did you kind of make of this? You two touched on kind of the biggest takeaway is the two halves in one movie that they have with following the thriller aspect of Bobby, which is quiet, slow, and building, and the Carla, the Orlock side of the movie, which it's somewhat touching, but Orlock character is so funny throughout that the the laughs outweigh any like it's just basically an amiable Hollywood satire. Well, but it does it does feel like I use being John Malkovich for a reason. Like this feels like. Something char- like a a segment of a movie that Charlie Kaufman watched and went, oh, interesting. <laughs> like, because it really is the director <laughs> well, what- of the movie that you're watching convincing Borg Boris Karloff to be in the movie that you're watching. Like, it is so metatextual and kind of almost has that like adaptation thing where like you're watching the movie being written. You're watching the movie that the people that you're watching the movie are writing while you're watching it. Like it's not to that convoluted level, but it is like the bones of that kind of idea. Well, I mean, they were already doing that kind that, that sort of meta commentary, real life blending in with the story thing was had already been going on for a while. Like in sunset Boulevard, that scene where they had where Barbara Stanwyck invites all of her Fred's over and their actual actors who were kind of washed up at the time, like Buster Keaton or um, the Sid C- not Sid Caesar. Who am I thinking of? The one where the star is a comedian who's making a TV show and all of the guest stars are going to be a- are actually treated as guest stars on his show. The Larry Sanders show. Well, I mean the one in the fifties no, and sixties. Um, b- oh, okay, but sorry, I'm just being mean. Um, okay, that's fine. <laughs> anyway. uh, no, but but I I think that's different though. Like those are like, hey, wink, wink, wink. Like that's you're right. That's metatextual. This is like you are watching the director convince uh, the star to be in the movie that you're actually watching. So. I think it has a, another layer of mindfuckery that was is very present in like Charlie Kaufman than just, hey, look, these these are actual washed up actors, not just fake people that we are like. They're both meta. I think one is a is another level of um, clever. Uh, I also appreciate a lot of kind of the 
finer details that happen within the movie. The the way they approach the character being a sniper is well handled with him adjusting the scope, him his breathing control. I'm not a huge gun nut, but I, I've learned about that, some of that stuff throughout. But, would you say that you're a man yeah. called aerodynamics? It's another. It's another guided by voices. Huh? I, I kind of figured, but <laughs> I, I, all roads lead to guided by voices. Thought, they got yeah. a lot of songs. Oh, look! There's a, a snare there. Maybe I shouldn't walk towards it, but I still did. Yeah. So, Dustin, it's your favorite. It's your favorite movie. Why is it your favorite movie, Dustin? All right. Um, I'll save the message at all, because it's a message movie that is perfectly designed to be entertaining, realistic. Hard-hitting and immersive in the way that it combines all of its elements. And you guys were saying how it doesn't feel like a Roger Corman movie. That's because it's a movie that is perfectly designed to fit its limitations, just like Texas Chainsaw Massacre was. For Texas Chainsaw Massacre, their original plans were way more ambitious. Like, the the house was going to be way more full of stuff in the yard and that kind of thing, and there were going to be more elaborate scenes, but they just didn't have the money, so it stays the sufficient tight machine, and the exact same thing happens with Bobby Thompson's story. It remains completely self-contained, totally believable. Uh, there's not unreal exposition in it, and he remains a completely human facade where you could add who like tries to reach out there's like token gestures for that as somebody in that situation would make but he's not a cackling movie villain but but there's also not enough insight into who he is and what it is that's driving him insane which is perfect even if it's completely uncinematic because the nature of these killers is until it happens, we don't know what's going on. So you can project Bobby Thompson onto anybody that you see, not just the weirdos, onto the the happy, pleasant, regular people. That's a really great point, Dustin. And it also, the interesting thing is, I thought it was going to be like Combat Shock or Death Dream or some of these other sort of movies where that are specifically about... Vietnam drove these people crazy and now they came back home and they think that they're still in war. Like, and that's a very exploitative concept. The movie does not, the movie barely hints at its history in Vietnam. Like for all we know, all they're saying with the Vietnam thing is that's where he got to be a good shooter. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean that, that it's not even established that he's in Vietnam. All we see is a black and white photo of him and, uh, in the mountains with a rifle he, that could just be they send him away to military academy for a little while or something like that you might not have actually seen combat or anything it's also like 1968 so i'm not trying to like it wasn't i think vietnam at the time wasn't this um at least portrayed on screen or kind of talked about as like this the huge like quagmire clusterfuck that it definitely became as the 70s went on that's not to say there weren't large contingents of protesters and people that were against the war and stuff like that but like that that movement of like Vietnam is really fucking up our youth really started you know coming to fruition in the in the early seventies and then kind of kept going as more and more troops came home and the war ended in the late seventies. Yeah, it, it. I think it's much more likely given how specific things that Bobby Thompson does in the movie are modeled on uh, Charles Whitman, yeah. the uh, shooter in. Um, Austin, yep, Texas, University of Texas, in a clock tick, yep. or 
I mean, he literally does. Wait, Charles Starkweather, he, you mean? Basically. No, Charles Whitman. No, Charles Whitman. Charles Starkweather uh, went on a killing spree with his girlfriend where he drove uh, through a state shooting people. Peter, if you could do is uh, take a take a note. No Charles is on this show. Charles, <laughs> so, and it turned out that Whitman, I believe, had a brain tumor, and that's what made his behavior erratic and whatnot. And like he literally, Whit- Thompson says and types things verbatim that yeah. Whitman was supposed to have said. Like he, like Thompson says when he gets his ammo, and somebody asks, "What are you gonna?" Do? do and he says i'm gonna go shoot some pigs verbatim what walt whitman said just before well, he charles whitman spree. walt whitman as far as we know oh, never wanted to go shoot charles. I, I warned you that not was, to do I, that that was so gonna happen sooner or later all yeah. right <laughs> yeah and the actual tagline for the movie where he types out um I killed my mother. I'm going to kill my mother and my wife. I know they'll get me, but before they do, many more will die. That that was used as the actual tagline, and that's directly from. Well, the original title Charles was Witnesses. "Before I Die" because he said, "But I'm going to kill a lot more before I die," and that was the original title of the movie because that is from his his note. So I do agree. It, it, I think it is supposed to be less of a of a vet thing, just because I don't think that was as ingrained in the culture at the time, and more of like, hey this guy snapped that was fucking weird let's make a movie about that um but it's also it's also great that it doesn't blame his family or the political environment he's in at all yeah and i and i love why and i love that they don't just blame it on vietnam because like as a corman movie you would expect them to really play up the salacious aspects of it and the and the exploitative aspects of it and I love that it's it's speaking more generally about a sort of American phenomena as opposed to this is the real story of Charles Whitman or this is the real story of the 101 because it's also based on uh, the, yeah there was a mass shooter the 101 who, freeway uh, shooter yeah yeah yes uh, like 65 I think this is the beginning kind of a of a as you say or Peter like a unique American problem like. You know, the Austin, Texas shooting was really the first – it was the biggest mass shooting, I believe, at the time of, like, just someone going and killing people outside of uh, wars. Like the And and now it's, it's much more common. And I think while they don't give a clear reason, because honestly, what – even if they did, there's not really a, ever a reason for this. Um, and I don't mean – I don't mean that in, like, a, a cynical way. It's just obviously I think a lot of people try to add – some sort of psychology to help people understand when they're part of the part of the the scary thing about someone who would all of a sudden open fire on large amounts of people they don't know is that we haven't necessarily quite got that pinned down uh, as something that is easily to understand. But what this movie does an amazing job of, and it feels like it's reaching across the screen and talking to the audiences of 2018, is as you guys both mentioned, there are warning signs. There's the warning signs of him saying, you know, I just, I, just I don't feel like myself, and 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 his wife, you know, kind of is like, okay, great, well, we'll talk about it. I'm going to work, stuff like that. The warning signs of him aiming his gun at his father, and he's like, I was just looking through the scope. The warning signs of like, well, he's sure buying a lot of guns, but he says, you know, I know him and his dad go target shooting, and I, the way that the warning signs are so subtle, and the way that they're kind of the warning signs that are like. That I think probably a lot of people that know people that end up going on to mass shootings where they're like, 
they don't know if it's a true warning sign or if they second guess themselves and go, yeah, it's weird, but I mean, I don't think he's going to go kill a bunch of people. Like, it, it, that, and that leap probably never occurs. It's like, in retrospect, when he, or, or because we as an audience know probably that he's going to go kill people, or in retrospect, those things seem so obvious. But I'm sure to the characters in the movie, and well, not I'm sure, that's what happens. Like, to the characters in the movie, they're a little odd. They're a little unlike himself. But definitely not the kind of thing that I'm sure those characters are like, he's probably going to go on. He's probably going to kill me. But he is sane enough to downplay things that always have an excuse ready, Ed. Well, that's conceal well, that's exactly his. I mean. It's like, that's, and that is, I think, true to a lot of stuff I've read about, like, people that knew these real people. It's like... Well, you know, I don't want to call the police and say I think he might be killing someone. And the police go, "Why? Oh, he's, I don't know, he's been. He, we were out shooting a gun. He played this joke where he kind of pretended to aim at me. Like, what? First of all, the police would probably go, "Okay, well, not a great joke." Like that's, I mean, that's, and I, again, I, I don't really have an ending to this because I don't have answers to this. But that's really where it feels like it's speaking to an audience. It's like the warning signs are clearly there that something is off. But no one knows what to do. No one does anything. Most people just kind of rationalize it as like, oh, that was odd, and then move on with their day. And it's only in, like, retrospect that you can look at these things and go, oh, yeah, these were clear cries for help or something to be concerned about. It also made me realize how important – there's two things in this movie that, like, just like in real life, today in 2018 could have stopped it – one is, you know, background checks on weapons and certain flags for buying X number of weapons or ammunition in a certain period of time, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and the other is that he says he's going through some stuff and his wife is just like, oh, well, you seem fine. And she it's not her fault. It's very important yeah, to point out. She's got to go to work. She's got to yeah. go to work. And he doesn't seem that upset about it. He just seems like he's like... He's just telling – it's like when you have a bad day at work but like you know you'll be better tomorrow. And you're just like, you know, I just don't really feel – I don't really feel like I had a satisfying day. I feel kind of bummed out. And if you say it once to your roommate – if you say it once to your roommate, like they'll just be like, oh, sorry, man. Hope tomorrow's better. You well, say it to your says, roommate. do you yeah. want to talk about it, right? She's yes. like, do you want to talk about it? He's like, yeah, I mean we can wait to the morning if you had a long day. And she goes, OK, yeah, we'll talk about it in the morning. Like – yeah. And you're right, you you hit the nail on the head. Uh, really, while there were these very subtle warning signs that when you're doing kind of an autopsy on the situation or a postmortem on like what happened, you can now from like a, almost a movie perspective say, yep, here's our little calling cards that something's off. But to the people at the time, it's not enough to take action. What would have stopped him from doing it? Is if he could – like he has to buy so many guns and so many bullets to kind of keep this whole thing going to the point that like guns are falling out of his backpack when he's running away. If there was a limit on that from a legal perspective, he may have been able to kill people. But he basically wouldn't have been able to kill people until finally someone stopped him in this way. Like I don't know if this movie is trying to say – I mean, knowing the director, it probably is trying to say something about gun control. But, like, it does feel like, oh, really, the only way that this could have been avoided if he could have not been able to buy all those guns. Well, what if the alternate taglines was, according to IMDb, why gun control? Question mark. So. Oh, yeah. But it. 
That's But I think the vibe the movie gives is not so much anti-gun because for one thing, when the gun is pointed at his father, his father is like is sort of a responsible gun owner, even though he sort of shrugs that off. He says, yells like, that's how accidents happen and things like that. So so he's not just like some crazy guy who's just shooting off recklessly. I think the guy has some training and that sort of thing. Yeah. And, it, and um, there are some guys who, when the shooting at the theater starts... They've like they grab guns out of their own vehicles and they're like proceeding gradually towards the screen. Yeah, but what stopped him? The punch of an old man. Yeah, but my my point is that it, it seems like it is maybe willing to concede that possibly a good guy with a gun could have stopped that bad guy with a gun. It, it's not like I think no, if I... Bogdanovich were all gu- uh, in on gun control, he would have had one of them like shoot at. Try to shoot at Bobby and, like, hit a bystander or something. Well, and that's why I said I don't know if that's, the, like, the messaging behind the movie from a directorial standpoint, but watching this movie and seeing how... Yeah, that's how it reads it's 50 how it re- years It's how later. it reads. It's like, oh, what was... There was literally no other way to stop him. Like, this this person is way more reflexive or reflective of, I think, something that we've seen over and over. Like, the Charles Whitman stuff was a... I mean, it was a huge thing. Like... My parents talk about, like, remembering where they were when they heard it, like, you know, kind of like the modern version of Columbine. And there's just there's, – there's still those points for, I think, a lot of us growing up now. That was, like, the big shooting. And then, you know, maybe, you know, five years later, a couple years later, there was another one. Like, everyone knew about that one and everyone remembered it from the time. And it was like, what is going on with this guy that he could just do that? And so – it was a lot more of a curioso where now it's like, oh, yeah, no, I've seen this now literally dozens upon dozens of times. So, and if back then you could have just gone, he's a nut. Yeah. And you would have been pretty, pretty safe. Well, you wouldn't, uh, you, there wasn't a whole lot you, you needed to do after that because these shootings are just like. Uh, well, part of it seems like the politic politicization of such events, like. A lot of people really don't want you to talk about that after it happens. Uh, like they say, look, don't you try to exploit this politically, which is basically them really saying, shut up and don't try, shut up and let this sort of move out of the headlines or whatnot. Or all the people who send NRA donations every time there's a mass shooting. Yeah. But I do think you could actually make the case in 1968. That you could make the case that there's no way to prevent the once in a once in a blue moon person who takes these guns and shoots someone because now I might not have agreed with that take in 1968 I don't know but like the logic was sound the reason that the onion from like how frequent it happened and like how on top of that the guns at the time how capable they were at committing kind of like mass shootings on mass which is a terrible statement to say, but it's true. Whereas now, the reason that The Onion keeps like publishing that same no way to prevent this, says only nation where this regularly happens every time there's a, a mass shooting, is because – and why people saying stuff like that has almost become a meme and a joke, like a very dark joke, but like a joke at how, how, how can you keep saying this when it happens all the time? Like clearly this is not like a no way to prevent this. It's happening on such a frequent basis that we probably have enough data now to take a look at it. 
Well, I mean, it's also this was the year that both Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy were uh, assassinated. So that certainly helped this probably feel a bit more topical if it also meant that fewer people wanted to go see it in theaters. I think they were quite or the studio mandated even kind of a little disclaimer type rigmarole before the movie about, oh, no, don't. Don't think this guy's a good guy, this Bobby. Yeah, he's no Thanos. <laughs> there's, okay, so there is a, the movie's not very bloody. There's a few touch. Certainly there's not. a few touches of red blood to indicate that someone is shot and didn't just fall asleep in their car. There's not a whole lot of blood in it. Very little. Yeah, basically just when he shoots his family members. Yeah. However, this is one of the most chilling movies I've ever seen. I my blood was cold when I was watching this because it is it's so believable in every aspect. There's there's a scene, there's a shot that's truly like terrifying in in how how simple and how minimal it is. There's a lot of minimal camera shots in this. They're just really like they get you. And there's a shot where Bobby um, just goes in the trunk, grabs his forty five, goes back inside, closes the door. And then we look at the exterior of the house for 30 seconds. The lights flick off then it moves on to the next scene. And there's such a terrifying finality, finality to that that was accomplished through the framing of the shot and through the length of the shot through editing that makes you know maybe 15, 20 minutes before he kills his family that they're dead. Yeah, it's like that. it's him saying, I've decided. Yes. And it reminds me of... Frenzy when the camera pans from the one woman going to the killer's house to the street and everybody walking by. Well, there's that point, too, where he, like, when the – I remember the first time I saw this movie, when uh, his wife comes home from work, I kind of expected her to walk into his parents being killed. Like, you could – Yeah. Because that is the snapping point. So, I was always very surprised that, like, oh, it hasn't happened yet, but, like – in some way, that makes it even more chilling because you know that his parents are asleep in the next room. Now his wife has come home from work, and like, like you said, Peter, they're they're dead. There, you are sitting there while in this amazing shot of him smoking the cigarette, and like has fa- half of his face illuminated by the bathroom light. He, like he is just saying, "Yep, I I decided I'm going to kill all these people." I'm still going to hang out with him for a little bit in the house and uh yeah just kind of just kind of thinking about when I'm going to do it. Yeah, you know that if he had you know the plan would have changed if she had turned on the light in that scene because the gun was sitting on the nightstand. If she had turned on the light, the killings would have happened that night, his father wouldn't have survived. Uh the, the mean, delivery guy would have another just weird thing or it may it may have been it's like, "Oh, why is the gun on your nightstand?" And he's like, oh, I don't know. I just wanted to be close to me. And she'd go, oh, that's odd. But, like, what are you going to do? Run and call the police at that point? Like, that's the thing is it's the warning signs are there. They're just not obvious until until the end, until you know until the end obvious. of the story. Yeah. And, and it's like you were saying you expected her, her to come home to dead parents. That is exactly what it seems like the movie is setting you up for. It's this creepy night, this creepy atmosphere. Surely this is them setting up a kill. Nope. It's not that predictable. Instead, he kills her and the rest of his family, other family members that are there, 
in broad daylight. You would expect. Which to me is. Yeah. Which is oddly creepier to me because, I mean, you associate daylight and light in general with good and safety. Yeah, there's a, there's a clarity to the murders. Like, there's a, they're in a well-lit uh, L.A. apartment with, you know, good good windows. It's a clear, cloudless day. And, like, you can see everything. The whole murder scene is, like, almost overlit uh, when he kills his wife. And he's typing up that letter. She comes in to, like, say goodbye to him for work. And you can tell... She's leaning him to give him a kiss. Yes. That that really, like, she is what at the time would be considered a good and dutiful, affectionate wife. Yes. she's She is, he's not getting vengeance on her for her betraying him or, you know, not at performing some sort of, her, her failing at some of her wifely duties or however, however these, these people, these crazy people uh, justify their violence, domestic violence towards their, their significant others and their family. The moment comes, and you expect this to be actually two scenes. Usually it would be two scenes. Him writing up the letter saying he's going to kill his family. And then another scene where you're just waiting for, you know, the the kill to come. Instead, him writing up the letter is him just basically being like, well, I got to write this letter right now. I finally have, I'm excited enough to, to do this act, this horrible series of acts. Or writing the letter excited him enough in the acts that he was like, okay, now is the time. Because it feels almost improvised. Like, he doesn't kill his dad. He kills some fucking schmuck that was delivering groceries. Like, the poor, this poor kid who, like, wasn't even, he was just dropping off the milk so his mom didn't have to carry it. There's a few things he does that feel like they have a ritualistic aspect to them. And it sort of invites you to speculate on what they are. And then... No, he just acts so randomly and erratically. Like he, like the way he seems to be carefully laying out his guns with some purpose. It sort of feels like there's some kind of something important about that. But no, he just grabs them all. Leave, well, not all of them. He like leaves half of them. A, a, you know what it reminds me of? And I'm not trying to say this is like um, to minimize it or something like that. But like you're right, Peter. Like the whole like he's getting excited about it by writing the letter, and then he. Uh, is laying out all his guns. It's not really a ritual. It's just you kind of look at like, well, I'm going to use all you today. And I'm excited about that. And it reminds me in some ways of, you know, Peter and I have been putting together our watch list for Spooktober. Like, you know, you get excited when you're making a list of all the movies you want to watch. And then like you look at your list on Letterboxd and all the different things. And you're like, I'm going to watch all of these this, this October. And like, that itself makes you want to go and say, oh, man, I wish it was Spooktober now so I could start watching all these. But I'm going to hold off because I want to do my own little weird ritual thing. And, like, obviously that's a kind of a weird comparison because – but you're right. Like, that act of, like, now I'm going to write about it. Now I'm going to look at all the things I'm going to use. Like, that's a very understandable thing that if if your thing is like, well, someday I'm going to kill all these people – those two things would get you psyched up to to commit that act. Yeah, it's and it's a human thing. The compulsion of getting like excited for a trip is you laying out your suitcase and all your stuff on the bed, you know. Yeah, and you over you overestimate how much, uh, you know, you pack too ma- you pack too many swimsuits, so to speak. And there's a there's a, a very understandable, very realistic uh, humanization of him and mundaneness it, into like yes. getting excited about your thing. 
Yes, and and it's not to sympathize with him or empathize with him because his actions are clearly horrifying. And the movie, which the movie, weirdly enough, has, I think, no actual in-scene music. I think it all comes no, it's from, all, yeah, from movies and stuff. All diegetic. Yes. <laughs> and that's really neat because the movie kind of lets you make your own assumptions about scenes. And clearly the movie knows and you know as a normal human being that it condemns this man. But it really wants to like spend some time with him so you can understand like these aren't monsters. Not his motivations but his process. Yes. It really helps you understand them as the killer as – what the movie says the killer is the modern version of a monster this uh this the guy that boris karlov is saying how can i you know why would people be scared of a painted mon no one's afraid of a painted monster because he throws a piece of paper down and there was some mass shooting he was like no who would be afraid of a painted monster in times like these and he, he kind of he has a point like when times are scary enough, sometimes horror can feel irrelevant. It's not, but it can feel well, irrelevant. I don't necessarily think it's irrelevant. I do think it is usually like major changes in the culture that result in like these shifts in horror that have occurred over the – especially like we can use film specifically. But like they're clearly – I mean the 60s into the 70s like post-Vietnam, um, you know, some of it is the Hayes Code stuff, but – it went pretty quickly to like the Hammer horror movies, to um, oh Texas Chainsaw Massacre and like Last House on the Left and these brutal fucking like early Grindhouse type stuff. So I mean, there clearly was a kind of a paradigm shift in horror that was already happening in 1968, but would only progressively get like turned up after this movie came out. But what? But what I think it's also subverting there is that when he says the real world is so much scarier now, this guy lived through the depression, the pro prohibition. I mean, World War II, the, the, the worst Korea, of the civil rights movement. Yeah, Vietnam, the beginning of Vietnam. He he's seen horrors that utterly dwarf Bobby Thompson and all the mass shootings that well, all the mass shootings that were likely to be happening at the time. So it's really more like that thing that just I'm old. The world is worse now, even though demonstrably it was worse when he was young, even if horror movies were tamer at the time. But I do think from I mean, from his perspective, I really want to underline this. Th and that's just the thing that happens to people as they age. Well, but I think it's more than that, because I think our our. Even though it is inaccurate for all the people that didn't have a voice at the time, our kind of like history book at the time is that you're right. There was a depression and there was like uh, the American narrative as like told in like Cliff Notes version that a lot of us learn in history school, uh, history school, you know, the special school you go to for history um, in history class, which is like America in the 20th century, the, the first half of the 20th century faced a lot of like external threats, right? Depression, financial stuff, World War One, World War II, uh, communism, stuff like that. And then like it was in the 60s. Uh, that America started to, like, the call was coming from inside the house, that America started to kind of, like, tear itself apart over over the civil rights movement or Vietnam or... or uh, We, quote, unquote, lost our innocence. Exactly. Which is a pretty ridiculous concept. Yeah, I mean, it, it's only... Given what we were... Yeah. <laughs> what we were doing to slaves and Native Americans. Of course. <laughs> since again, the moment we landed on the shore. And part, again, part of the reason 
that there was like, oh, everyone is go is out of control. It's like, oh, you're saying that because like young people are like, hey, we should have a voice, and women are like, hey. Uh, maybe we should actually be equal in the women's liberal movements and the civil rights movement and, you know, the emergence of the gay rights. Like, there was a lot of stuff of marginalized voices that led to all that, quote unquote, call coming from inside the house or whatever. It was like a bunch of people that finally had a voice. Um, so, the, obviously, like I said, the narrative itself is bullshit. But from Boris Karloff's character's perspective, that that is the narrative is that, well, things have just gotten really crazy. I'm just saying it's true to life, yeah. uh, oh, but Bogdanovich can, can see yeah. through it. But in, but it's not it's not yeah it's not Bogdanovich being silly and you know panicking. It's him taking uh, the uh, count, uh, Brian Orlock uh, character on a journey. Which really quickly, did we talk about the fact that Orlock is the Nosferatu's name? No, I don't think we mentioned that yet. Yeah, that's uh, but- a. Count Orlock is, is Nosferatu's uh, sort of uh, not Dracula, in quotes, name. But I think what Dustin was talking about checks out with the final line of the film. And we can debate what this kind of means or kind of suss out what this means. But uh, Byron Orlock says, is that what I was afraid of? It, it's really it's really an interesting character arc because – it starts with him being like, these guys are really scary. And then he's sort of realizing like there's something pathetic. There's something. Absolutely. There's something really like sad and, and off about these monsters. These aren't some epic, undefeatable evil. This is not Frankenstein who dies at the end of the movie and then somehow is alive again in Bride of Frankenstein and then chooses to commit suicide in Bride of Frankenstein and then there's Son of Frankenstein like like it's not that well even in Frankenstein early on Frankenstein is like basically a big is being treated like a big child yes. or whatnot he's a sympathetic figure yes he is and really I mean I don't think Bobby Thompson chose to be evil if he's a he could be afflicted by something. He's not necessarily just a sociopath or psychopath or somebody who fl- who decided to flip his own switch someday and had some sort of Lady Macbeth, I choose to be evil speech. Yeah, he has compulsions, which are, is one of the scariest human things possible. The idea that it's not a Bond villain thing where someone says, you know, let's say he has some sort of social Darwinism going on, you know, like the strong will survive after my doomsday device melts the polar ice gaps. Like there's no or like, you know, I, I was strong and I I stood up against, uh, you know, poverty or, you know, I, I stood up against the British Empire or whatever. Like a lot of these villain, these traditional villains have these sort of motivations where they're they're really like. It's a moral understanding of the universe that differs from ours. This guy, Bobby, has compulsions, which is so scary. And those sort of villains even sort of made a comeback with Hannibal Lecter and uh, what's his name from Seven. Like they clay, like they act like they've got some moral or intellectual superiority over the universe. Nope, Bobby's just shooting at people because they're there and so is he. So I actually think um, – I thought about the line a little differently and I really like your read of it. But I actually saw it in kind of keeping with w- the way I viewed Karloff's and uh, Bogdanovich's previous conversations in that it was kind of an echo of that kind of metatextual element in that it's 
not a very fanfare ending. There's no sense of triumph. It is a very quick punch, and you've stopped your villain, and it's a comment on, oh, is that all there is? Like, in real life, stopping someone who has m- murdered this many people, there there isn't a triumph like you see in, in movies. How many movies do we watch where hundreds or thousands are dead and then everyone stands up and applauds and jumps up and slaps high fives when the bad guy is defeated even if they get defeated in a you know a simple way it's usually some crazy thing you know bond's a really good touch point like tons of people are dead at the end of every bond movie and you know you don't even think about it it's just a there's a big climactic ending a big set piece and then you stop the villain and that exciting part and all the action stuff that occurs Makes you like walk out going, yeah, Bond really stopped it. And here it's just kind of a thud. You know, people are trying to stop him. He punches him down. The police take him away. He's crying. Yeah. Bobby's crying in the yeah. corner in the fetal position. Just yeah. like, I, I, I don't even know if it's what have I done. It might just be like, what do I do now? I didn't picture it going this way. Yeah, well, he kind of picture, he pictured himself dying. So I really do think that it is like, a, oh, is that all that like – there, there's no triumph in the and and that again references the previous movies because in those movies there was triumph when the monster was defeated there was a sense of victory and here like you don't leave this movie with a sense of victory you leave this movie staring at an empty parking lot with the killer's car that no one bothered to move and kind of ruminating on all the loss of life that you witnessed and how it seems almost impossible to prevent in that situation like it's not breaking the fourth wall but it almost felt like he was speaking directly to the audience of this sort of movie. I mean, the whole point of it, I think, is kind of going back to what a formalist is, uh, Bogdanovich is, that he was so obsessed with Orson Welles and such a movie fan. Well, he was a movie critic before he became a director. I think he's like basically tried to say, no, you might think that these old movies have no place anymore and whatnot, but they'll always have a place because if you want to take your super realistic, super um, down-to-earth crime that's happening on the street, villainy, it's really pathetic. Like, they could be taken down with embarrassing ease if somebody shows just a bit of courage, and I'd say Orlock definitely is showing some level of courage as he walks up to the guy and just sort of brushes off that he gets grazed by a bullet and whatnot. Not so significant. The, and it was not. It was not Orlock's <laughs> job to do anything. His his job. I mean, it, I, they, I they were trying to get him out of there, and before they could realize it, she, he was already in in uh, the gunman's sights. He he was angry because uh, his daughter had been shot by this guy. Is it his daughter? Yeah, I'm I not sure he's much supporting that. Oh, okay. Well, his secretary, uh, assistant secretary. I thought that's what it. Yeah, I don't think it's was. his daughter. I think it's oh. like his publicist. Okay. Well, also, I think supposed to be Sammy's girlfriend. Like to show how obsessed Sammy is with Orlock, but <laughs> that he uh, or that his in to get to Orlock was through his publicist. But anyway, yeah, he he's inspired to do this brave thing brave thing that he's hopelessly outmatched against really he should be he he would think he's certainly going to be gunned down if if this person is as scary and strong and whatnot 
But no, it's it's not just a thud or it's a hollow victory. It's a ludicrously, almost embarrassingly easy one. So that's Slapping why we the guy need... around and he hits him with his cane. Like it's it's so well, he hits he, he knocks the gun out of his hand with the cane. Yeah, and he, he doesn't even really like pull any special moves. He's just sort of like no, just a couple of back. He hands. treats him like you know in the old model of parenting you would treat uh you know a. a a child. Unruly kid. Yes. Yeah, cer- certainly something like that probably would have happened to him in his upbringing. So we need evil to be big, tough, and strong, and clever and calculating, and have some sort of philosophy and morality that we can defeat behind it. So we'll always need our Boris Karloffs and our Vincent Prices and our Kaiser Sozes and our Hannibal Lecter. So I could definitely see that being the point that that uh, Bogdanovich is making, but I just find that way less interesting than the idea of real-life villains don't have fanfare when you defeat them. Yeah, I think they all I think it all I think it all really checks out because it is such a potently small minimal ending that you can read so much into it. And all yeah. of it and all of it is is rousing in a way like the fact that the villain after, you know, essentially going on these like frenzied shooting sprees, all it takes is like one old man who's properly motivated to take him down is is a really potent idea like that. This isn't some they didn't find his one his one weakness like they didn't have like his dad come yell at him or whatever to bring him out of his his, his shooting fold. It just took any the right guy at the right time. It's it's so potent and you can read so much into that. And that's like the value of how minimal this movie is and how much of it is not there's very little like impressionism to it. There's very little a lot of it is just sort of played as as straight as Bogdanovich could, especially on the Bobby half. The the the, the Karloff half is a lot of fun. That's the other thing that makes this not feel like a Corman movie. You need that Karloff half where this movie might sort of feel like it's trying to beat you over the head with its grimness and realism and whatnot. It would be alienating. It would be so maniac. It helps the other half go down. Yeah, it'd be Keeping the, Tom or Maniac or one of those more grim... Which are, which are good movies, yeah. Um, so there's so many little moments I want to talk about in this movie. Let's talk a little bit about like moments and scenes. I know we've been spending a lot of time on a couple big moments in this, but it, it really is a simple movie from a, like, the two stories progress very Beautifully quickly. simple movie. Beautifully yeah, simple. but there is so many good moments in that or, or terrifying moments or chilling moments. Um I think like one of the one of the most like harrowing moments is there's that scene of like it pans through that car at the drive-in and there's a kid crying. It's a very slow pan. And you know, so it gets passenger seat first and then as it pans you see that the dad has been shot and this like little kid is just looking at his dad who's been shot and is crying and then it keeps panning so you don't see the kid anymore and then you hear another gunshot and the kid stops crying but you're not on him anymore so like it's easy to piece together oh that kid just got shot um the the movie's like an interesting combination of completely blatant 
blatant and in your face with its violence and like the also fo- like very the phone- restrained. Yeah, because right before that's the phone booth shooting, right? Like where literally the bullet goes through the glass, the camera goes through the glass and then, you know, makes him like, it's like this very fast, like almost like Martin Scorsese type edit. And then that's very followed stylish. By like, yeah, it's great. But then that's followed by the kind of slow pan of like um, implying heavily that that kid you heard crying is not crying anymore because we're still on the shot and you just heard a gunshot. It's the opposite of an action-y or, or exploitative. Yeah. Or even exploitative. It's just, de- it's, this is just depressing. Like, there's, there's no thrills in this movie, in my opinion, really. Yeah, there's, there, that's what's, that's what I kind of love about it is that you don't get that, you don't get that guilty sense sometimes when you're watching these these thrillers. Oh, that's what I absolutely love about it. You yeah. don't get that guilty sense. And as someone who loves exploitation movies, and we've covered a lot of them for the show, sometimes you'll be watching a scene and you're like, oh, this is really scary. This is really taut. And then all of a sudden, there's a shot clearly of the woman's shirt being torn open or a shot of the guy doing a cool knife move or something, uh, you know, a guy... Um, I just watched a movie called Downrange, uh, Ryuhei Kitamura's like uh, sniper movie similar to this, except for it's a siege movie, like a bottle movie kind of thing. And there's a lot of sniper stuff in that that's like, this is supposed to be horrifying, this is supposed to be scary, but like he revels in it in certain moments that you can't help but think like, cool. <laughs> it's it's it, you can't help it because the movie has told you it's cool through its language like um this in in uh, targets there's no reveling in the violence in in that manner and and it's it kind of helps make it less exciting that there's less blood because like um there's no spectacle yes there's no spectacle we're used to that sort of uh you know like like oh shit! Big blood splatter. Like, shit, he or got big owned. <laughs> holes. Yeah. When somebody is shot. Yeah. There's none of that. It makes you feel. I mean, it's less guilty. It lets you sort of engage with the work on a more sober level, which is what the work should be engaged on. And I love. Well, that. I guess that's. I guess that's also why it doesn't feel like a Roger Corman movie. <laughs> yes, because <laughs> Roger Corman movies um, make that kid's head explode. <laughs> yeah, he wanted people to have fun at the movies and go tell their friends like, "Hey, go see, go see the the packages playing right now at the drive-in." Like he, Corman wanted to, Corman wanted to have people to have fun at the movies, so he made a lot of very fun movies. But this movie did not call for that approach. Bogdanovich refused to do it, and I love that. Adam, um, what were some of your favorite yeah, moments? Adam, are there any moments that I stick up for you? Related to the phone booth shooting, the the projectionist being shot oh, for some yeah. reason. Just one, I kind of like the methodical nature of him blowing up the film, and but also just the idea of. The, Bobby thinking to kill him too, as well as all the kind of more obvious targets in the drive-in, and and that guy's in the light too. So he's like, uh, in some ways, an easier target, but he's like behind a no, wall. True. So in other ways, he's a very hard target, a very difficult target, I should say. <laughs> but um, more sterile uh, favorite scene was uh, Orlock's version of the appointment at Samara. The telling he did of that, I. I think when I had first seen the movie, that was the first version of that story that I'd heard. And although I had forgotten about it since until I rewatched it then, I, I kind of remembered how much I enjoyed it then and enjoy it now. Just that Karloff has a really powerful storyteller voice. Oh, yeah. He, he told us how the Grinch stole Christmas. 
and how it kind of parallels to some aspects of the movie too because yeah i think it feels like it's trying to set you up to think that this is going to be what the movie is a metaphor for it's it's supposed to be Karloff's appointment with meeting the world that he does not want to confront. Like, by quitting, he's sort of denying death and denying all of his thinking about how scary the world is getting and whatnot. And then he goes to the drive-in, and that is what... And he's supposed to he's supposed to die, but he doesn't. That's supposed to be his appointment with death in Samaria. Oh, I never thought about that. Yeah, it's another one of Bogdanovich's baits and switches. I, but it's also just a nice, very cinematic moment. I just thought that was nodding at classic horror, particularly Corman, who would adapt Poe, and he would adapt, you know, uh, you know, Mask of the Red Death, and sort of these classic horror stories from the cl- true classics. Um, I thought that's what, what uh, Corman was doing. Um, and also, so you could get Karloff live in the movie, showing off his horror chops, because the rest of the movie, he's pretty goddamn charming. Uh, instead, yeah, I, that's that's an interesting thing. I didn't that didn't click for me, Dustin. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, well, yeah, kind of sounds like an insult. Like, well, yeah, it didn't click for you, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> but but if something is like trying to set you up to go down one path, and you know, going in that a movie is kind of subversive, you might not have taken the bait, so you d- might not even have known that there was a trick being pulled on you. Yeah, and, and or and, an attempt to pull a trick on. And you. that's like a pretty classic. That's actually really big right now with um, all these old man, uh, old man goes out for one last ride movies. Um, Especially Logan and Gran Torino, the intern, uh, dirty grandpa. Dirty grandpa. All these guys go. The old man goes out. Las Vegas. (laughs) Hey, Robert De Niro. I think you're done with your rights. Yeah. um, These guys. These old guys doing one last job before going out. Um, Oh, Schwarzenegger did a did one. I was I was. uh, It's pretty interesting with sabotage. The last stand. Oh. Um, Hasn't he been doing that exclusively for the last fifteen years at this point? <laughs> I guess I guess Terminator Three was also that, but like Terminator Three was him saying goodbye to. I'm going to be a governor. <laughs> yeah, it was him literally saying goodbye to acting, and then he came back. Um, but yeah, there's we're in a we're in a, a I guess like a spur of these like old man does one last job and true grit. Um, and it, it's a, it's a trope that's been around for a while. And, uh, that's kind of what I was expecting. I was like, Karloff is going to be the scary monster one last time and fuck this guy up, but he's going to die in the process because, you know, this monster is going to have put a couple bullets in his, in his belly and that's how he's going to really retire. He'll have escaped Hollywood. Um, but blah, blah, blah. And especially let's, let's jump back a little bit. Karloff. Seems to not really know how to re- be retired. The first night he's having fun. He's having drinks with his secretary. Let's celebrate my freedom. Yes, he's having fun. Night two, he's drinking a lot more, watching old movies of his. <laughs> like, he's already, like, he seems to not know what he wants to do with his retirement. <laughs> I don't know. I, I thought that going to Europe and living in a vineyard or whatever he was going to do sounded fine. Like, well, yeah, he's just waiting for his for arrangements to be made for his 
uh, cruise back to the old country. Queen Mary, not Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> well, I guess I'll go to this drive-through and promote. <laughs> like, here's the other thing. So, if you watch the Corman documentary, Corman's World, they spend a lot of time for a movie that has to cover a lot of ground. They spend like five or ten minutes on the movie that's featured both at the beginning and the end of this, The Terror, because. Jack Nicholson and other people that are in that movie, Dick Miller, make fun of how terrible and how, like, Roger Corman couldn't even feel like because Roger Corman came in and they had shot some stuff and it wasn't working and he put some stuff together. And Jack, like, Jack Nicholson in that documentary is like, no one can tell me. Roger can't even tell me what's going on in that movie. So I'm not sure if, and I couldn't find anything, if A, it was like Roger Corman trying to secretly promote a movie that wasn't working or getting his normal numbers. Yeah, I think. Or B, Peter uh, Bogdanovich going, uh, hey, Corman, I'm going to exclusively feature your worst movie. Oh, he, no, 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 no. <laughs> Corman insisted the terror had to be in there if the movie were going to be made because he was actually losing money on the terror and he just couldn't fucking yeah, take exactly. that. Exactly. Well, that, so, that really fits with the documentary. I, I wasn't able to find that answer in the minimal research I did because it stood out for me because it was so heavily featured as like this. Even Corman, like they do one of those classic like documentary things where all these people shit on this movie and then it goes. It, it was such to, a cluster. F- yeah, it cuts to him oh. and he just kind of raises his hand and goes, does like a shrug. Like, yeah, I, people didn't like that one. <laughs> like, yeah, well, it's not even the, so much the terror is bad as the production was such a cluster. Yeah, highly recommend Corman's World if you hadn't seen it. I, I do n- I do not recommend the terror though, even for ironic viewing. Um, one moment I don't want to gloss over because I didn't even notice it the first time, and it's super disturbing. Uh, but it's so subtle, and it works so well. Which is the like so after he kills his wife and the delivery boy and his mom, he starts cleaning them up and like putting them in bed. But he's not cleaning them to hide evidence or anything like that. No, that. That's something uh, Charles Whit- – that's another thing Charles Whitman did. Yeah, wh- which is like – it's super disturbing, this idea. Because at first, when he's doing it to his wife, you o- you almost get the sense of like, oh, is he hiding evidence? Because you haven't seen the note yet, right? Because yeah. it, it only and, – and, but he's not. He's just He's just tidying up his murder scene before he goes out to murder more people. And then it zooms in on the note and it's like, oh, he – he he's expecting people to find these bodies. It was never a I'm I'm cleaning up my my crime scene. It's just a he just wanted it a little cleaner before he left his house, probably to never return. Like it's super chilling. It's a ritual that feels like there's a purpose, but it's but instead it sort of reinforces the empty the nihilism of it. Like you see the note, he explicitly knows what's going to happen and what what he's doing. But you also see, but there's no purpose behind it. There's no uh, philosophy or motivation. Just, it's going to happen. We also see how incredibly calm he is afterwards at the gun store as he's buying, like, boxes and boxes of ammunition, presumably minutes or at most, like, an hour after killing his mom and wife. Even after the police arrest him, all he has to say is, I hardly missed, didn't I? Like, there's no remorse in him at any point, or even, like... Well, not remorse, I meant panic. He's not even, like, trying to talk his way out of it, or... Yeah, only when they, Adam, only when they kind of called his dad, 
It was like, a, oh, oh, does he know? Good point. Let me see. But I, but <laughs> it, it almost feels more like, oh, I'm going to get in trouble, not... <laughs> or Oh, oh dad's going to be real plan. cross. <laughs> He's not, like, sweating or... It's almost like, am I going to have to kill these people? Moment. Oh, okay, that's yeah. what... Good, I see. That makes more sense then. So what else do you guys have for last moments? And then we can wrap this thing up. Small and so- Well, first off, I just want to do a shout out to the line where uh, he's talking, wh- where Brian Orlock is talking to a stupid DJ and the DJ is going like, man, I must have seen all your movies like four zillion times. You really blew my mind. <laughs> and Orlock says, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that struck me as a Dustin line when I heard that. Or- Orlock's got some great singers in there, like when the producers tried to convince him to go back to the movie, and he's like saying, think of the audience, all those disappointed kids out there, and Orlock says, I can't believe you in the role of public defender. <laughs> you care so much about the public's well-being, stop making movies. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, He's really given a lot of great, like, um, bitter old man, but like bitter old man who hasn't lost his edge lines. And I adore that because it would be really sad for this to be the last Karloff movie and to have him be like stumbling over his words or anything. Karloff can deliver anything still. It's, it's really impressive. Um, especially since like at the time he had to like use an oxygen mask between takes and when he's walking up to Bobby Thompson, he's not just using a cane, he's got leg braces. Yeah, and um, uh, but, but you it, did know. Oh, 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 during the familicide scene, when he uh, this is so small that I I don't think maybe even you guys won't remember it. But after he shoots his wife, as he as his mother is coming in, saying what what's all this? And he's getting up to kill the other two. There's like a close up on his wife's purse, so there's like money coming out of it and whatnot. And I don't think that. Like a comment on like money or materialism or something like that. I think it's because maybe this is just me, but in really stressful situations, I could like sort of obsess or focus on really trivial stuff that's sort of off to the side of the thing that really matters. Like sometimes, like when people are confronting me and yelling at me, sometimes there could be like something that's like on their shirt or like just past their head or whatnot that I focus on as like sort of a way to shut myself out of the confrontation. And I think that's what Bogdanovich is trying to sort of tap in for what's happening to Bobby and like how none of the none of the evil he's gonna do is really connecting to him and bother in any way like getting to him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's true. I, I think that the only time we ever see Bobby truly panicked is when Bobby is missing his shots and the cops are closing in. It's the only time we ever we ever see Bobby panicked is when his plan is not going according to plan. And on that, I mean, we almost never see him him panicked until the two shooting scenes because all of a sudden this this fantasy that he has built up is kind of uh, dissolving in midair. And and uh, <laughs> I guess that might be a good way to sort of move move to final thoughts on the episode, Aaron. Um, yeah, is, is, I, think I, it's, uh, I think it's good. 
I think I think it's good too. I think I've kind of said my 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 piece on this, but yeah, the way that this movie uh, runs away from more exploitive stuff and runs right into this sort of pure minimalist thriller space really helps keep it really helped make it a, a piece that's going to survive the ages. Uh, unfortunately, there's yeah, too unfortunately. Much- a lot of this is unfortunately still very relevant. You know, we, it feels like we talk about that all the time, Peter. Like we're, we're we're constantly like, man, this just feels like it was ripped out of today's headlines and made today. I wish at some point that we start saying that about like positive things um, about movies that we watch from like the 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever else it is. But like you're 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 dead to rights on this, like. It, Clint, you get you guys should watch the My Little Pony movie if you want that effect. <laughs> you know the the positive aspect of the My Little Pony movie. It starts with we got the beat by the Go Go's, so now I got my four year old really into the Go Go's. So <laughs> the movie is terrible, but hey, anytime you can introduce a uh, good good uh, was that a Winnie Dustin? <laughs> uh, anytime you can, anytime you can. Uh, introduce good music to your kids it's always exciting uh you gotta use any avenue but yeah no it is it sucks that we that we keep saying over and over on this podcast like yeah this movie made 50 years ago super relevant but holy shit you owe yourself to see this movie it's 90 minutes it's on amazon you can rent it it's so fucking powerful and it just it really is a little masterpiece that um I'm so glad. I mean, it's how we all met, but I'm so glad the dissolve introduced it to to myself. And um, yeah, it's amazing. I my final thoughts were kind of about how well the production design did on this, particularly Bobby's oh, house. Yeah. Kind of really, it's a uncomfortable place with its, its colors and its it, it looks- cramped feeling and the kind of missing door handle. It's not where I'd want to live, and even Bobby kind of looks the stranger in his house when home. He, yeah, it. W- we were observing. It looks like the place in Manos, the Hands of Fate, the, with that yeah. baby blue color wall coloring. Well, it, it hits that like Peter. You mentioned how overlit it is, so it looks like a you know fifties or sixties sitcom. Like it abs- it nails it. Oh yeah. So like I said. Um, my my alternate tagline for the movie would be "fuck your movie, this one's better." <laughs> um, <laughs> so you want my movie to have intercourse with your movie? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> um, so yes, it's in its way this great celebration of cinema and the enduring power of classic cinema, and a reject and but it also is a rejection of all cin of all cinematic technique, all storytelling method, and whatnot that is all the more powerful for it and which means that it in no way insists on its relevance it's not trying to force emotion on you with music it's not trying to say it has all the answers or any of that sort of thing it's just a perfect simple minimalist impressionist masterpiece and it's a shame that uh, Bogdanovich never had an opportunity he made other movies that I know are regarded as classics, but I don't think he ever came near this one again. Yeah, of the movies I've seen by him, this is my favorite. I mean, I like Last Picture Show and What's Up Doc and stuff, but this is definitely my favorite of his movies. So thank you guys so much for coming on the show uh, again. 
Uh, and again, and again, and again, we really love having you. Uh, <laughs> it's a compulsion. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, what What do you guys have to promote? I know you guys have a new book out. Our latest project is Not Meant to Know. It is, in its own way, the targets of uh, urban occult horror. It's a story about a person who's part of a small cult who is performing rituals in an attempt to... Re- to rescue his daughter from the void and his lies and mistakes and interference from outside parties are endangering him, those close to him, and reality as we know it. It's available on Amazon, wherever fine books are sold. Uh, excellent. I know I am really excited to... Um to read that I did I did purchase it. Um I've never been in all seriousness, I've never been disappointed by anything that you guys have put out, uh, from Adam's cracked articles to uh the the books and podcasts and everything else that I've um read about you guys. You guys are extremely creative guys, very prolific, uh kind of to a shaming sense. <laughs> but, uh, but uh you you guys are, are excellent. I always enjoy your work, so I'm very much looking forward to reading this on my Kindle or Android device. Peter, we're kind of taking a month off. We're kind of taking a month off, but we're not. Um, we're actually releasing more episodes than we're, normal. We're releasing more episodes than normal, <laughs> and there might even be a few bonuses in there. So next month, what we're doing is... Uh, we're cleaning out our archives. Cleaning out That's, the archives. So yeah. we got a few fun surprises. We've got four episodes of a podcast that we produce on the side. You'll hear more about that next month. Um, next week. Next first, week. Sorry. Next week. The, yeah. Next week are the first two episodes of that podcast called that uh, we, we never quite saw a name. I think it's called Don't You Dare. Yeah. Don't um, You Dare. But essentially it was uh, Peter. Uh, you know how sometimes you like recommend stuff to a friend um, and they're like, you should watch this or you should listen to this or you should play this video game. Uh, well, Peter and uh, as you guys all know, based on the court order, all of our interactions need to be recorded. Uh, so the only way that we were able to do that was to create a podcast where we would recommend something that we probably wouldn't do on this show, unless we're at some point, we're going to do a, we love to watch on smash Mouth's first album and, uh, and, and talked about it. Uh, they're short, little shorter episodes. So next week we're releasing the first two of those, uh, one on a uh, PlayStation two game called no one lives forever. And the other one on uh, smash Mouth's first album, Fushu Mang. Um, I'm excited for these to get out because we recorded them. We recorded them a, a very ago. long time ago. Um, and you should note, Peter loved the, these first two are very much like kind of nostalgia episodes. So uh, the the PlayStation Two game uh, and PC game, No One Lives Forever, was one of Peter's favorite games, and I was obsessed with that Smash Mouth album at 15, um, and I hadn't listened to it since. So it was very interesting to to revisit it. <laughs> Um, and also make Peter listen to it. Uh, and then uh, the next week, we're finally releasing our much-talked-about um, pilot episode that we did for the show. when Peter The last episode. Never, kind of our last episode, yeah. Where Peter and I had never really spoken before uh, outside of Facebook chat. But we felt like our banter was solid enough that we should do a podcast as a creative outlet. And so we basically had never spoken before. 
And we talked for about four hours, and that has been edited down, but it was edited down quite a long time ago. I'm going to try to take a pass, and we'll record a new intro when you want to start talking about the Superman 4 stuff. And Dustin Kosky, actually, uh, when we were like, hey, we're thinking about doing this thing, volunteered to listen to the episode and give us some notes. Um, so Dustin really has been with us. Uh, I think I think outside of us, too, Dustin, you were the first person to to hear that episode. I'm the third watchy. <laughs> You're our mascot. Um, um, so, uh, so we're excited to release that. Um, we'll 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 have an intro where if you so the first hour I think of the podcast is us trying to come up with names, which for for long time listeners will know we settled on listen to our podcast for the first twelve episodes, which uh, people violently let us know I think was a bad choice. For, from a lot of different perspectives for a podcast. Um, but w- you can hear our struggle on that episode trying to come up with a name. We thought it would be a good way to break the ice for us uh, conversing. And again, it was, it has been edited down. But uh, And then we'll also put a timestamp on when you can listen to the, us actually uh, back when we just used to go through the plot of these movies in order. Talk about Superman for the quest for peace. And then, um, Peter, the next week we're releasing the next two episodes of Don't You Dare, which are about... Uh, one more nostalgia pick. Uh, which is something I brought to the show, which is uh, Real Big Fish's Turn the Radio Off, which was an album that I was obsessed with at a similar age that uh, Aaron was uh, with the Smash Mouth album. And then the other one is uh, Pete's Dragon, um, the uh, remake by Peter Lowry. Um, David Lowry. David Lowry. Not everything's Peter. Uh, not everything's Peter. Well, everything is about me. In that case, um, it was it was I made Peter watch Pete's Dragon. So it's a lot of Peter. Yeah, and then uh, and, uh, we just thought it would be a better fit for this show than it would be for We Love to Watch. So Also, uh, here's here's why we did it, is because I named it my favorite movie of 2016. It's on Netflix. I've been talking to Peter about it since I saw it almost two years ago, and Peter still hadn't seen it. So this was like my way to get him to watch one of my favorite movies of the last few years yeah and um i uh was gonna say is i'm pretty excited to get those episodes out just because uh it's fun to kind of go off format and you guys can give us all the feedback you want on these four episodes we're putting out next month on on that for particular format because yeah we, we already have a few more plans so and we we enjoy doing them they're kind of short they're a lot uh, a lot of fun so hopefully you guys like them as well yeah, and uh, we also have a bonus. Uh, lost. This is a truly lost, lost episode. Lost episode uh, for Musical May on yep. the Apple that we'll be putting out. Uh, not in May. It is August. Um, no, and I, I bet you I'm. we're talking about uh, Memorial Day exclusively because I ruined your weekend. Uh, <laughs> but we'll, you'll, you'll hear more about that at the end of September. And then I should just say... We don't have a full roster here. We'll put something on the Facebook page because um, as we are not recording it, all those episodes are recorded. We'll, we'll try to put a tag on the last September episode um, with what's going on. But we are very excited for what we're doing for October. Um, we kind of turned over our uh, podcast or, or at least our podcast selections to people that are not ourselves, which is the first time we've done that in two and a half years of doing this podcast, um, to talk about movies that um, they found passionate. And we'll, we'll give some more details on that little tease now. But since it is August, we want to save that a little bit for a bigger announcement later on. But uh, we're really excited about that. So make sure that you check out our Facebook page. Um, 
whenever you want, but also near the end of uh, September where we're going to announce some of that stuff. And then uh, and on the end of our uh, on, on, on the end of our Apple episode, we'll detail uh, guests and movie selections as well. So we are very excited for that, though. Yeah, it's going to be a very fun fall. And um, and yeah. secretly, we have our roster plan till the end of February. So we got a lot of stuff. Uh, and that is it for us, kind of for a month. So you'll hear some very young versions of Aaron and Pete, and then you'll hear some slightly older ver- versions of Aaron and Pete, and then you'll hear some versions of Aaron and Pete from this summer. Yeah. Haggard. Wise Haggard. Old. The yeah, b- and the old versions of Aaron and Pete are going to be listening to the young versions of Aaron and Pete, looking back on how much better things were in those days. <laughs> oh, those speaking, were the days. Well, speaking of a uh, metatextual Charlie Kaufman as nightmare. Anyways, any final thoughts? Any final words you want to say to us, Dustin? Adam? Don't make me a target. Yeah, picking a song for this is going to be not oh, great. Oh, well. Hit me with your best shot? No, it's a little done. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to use uh, John Cale's 433 for, the, for that one. Yep. Do you think... <laughs> Good night. Good night. folks thanks for listening to we love to watch thank you so much for listening to our show and we've got just a few quick announcements for you there ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs baby if you'd like to talk to us uh tell us we're stupid tell us we're beautiful the quickest way to get to us is our facebook group facebook.com slash we love to watch or our website, WLTWpodcast.com. Leave us a comment. Tell us we're doing a good job. Only tell us we're doing a good job. We're so sensitive. We're sensitive boys. We're soft boys. And uh, if you'd like to help other people, if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost, We don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available if you don't use iTunes. We're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, Tune in. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. (laughs) That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, Let us know what you guys are thinking. And again, above all else, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch.